Good morning and thank you so much, uh, Pastor Jason, for leading us in the service and for Christy and the music team for leading us to sing songs to God. Good morning, everyone. I ask you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 79. And for those of us who take sermon notes, you might find it helpful to, to use the, the outline in the e-bulletin. Now I ask you to please join me in prayer. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, please fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. And shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me ask you in opening, what's the longest that you've heard when the people had to wait in order to get justice or vengeance? For Elon Musk, who is the richest man on earth right now, vengeance didn't take too long. After his acquisition of Twitter, now he's the chief tweet, right, I quote from this CNA article, Elon Musk became Twitter's new owner on Thursday, October 27th, firing top executives he had accused of misleading him, including its CEO, Parak Agrawa. With money and power at his disposal, Musk got rid of his foes with a snap of his finger, or to him, a snap of the finger is the price of 44 billion US dollars. But how do the poor and the powerless get justice? As many Indians all around the world celebrated Deepavali in Tamil or Diwali in Hindi, they celebrated on Monday. And on that day, they also rejoiced to see one of their sons, Rishi Sunak, emerge as the new British Prime Minister. It was like a festive gift. Although Mr. Sunak was born in Southampton, he is of Indian descent. So India commemorated the 75th anniversary of independence from colonial Britain this year in August. Some see this as poetic justice, that an ethnic Indian is now head of government in Britain. So here are some headlines from the papers in India this Tuesday, the day after the announcement. The Telegraph India says this, ex-India company set to run Britain. So they are referring to the East India Company, which was once the de facto ruler of Britain's colonies, including Singapore and India. The Times of India declares, history turns full circle as Rishi Sunak becomes Prime Minister of the once colonial power from which India wrested independence 75 years ago. For India, this was a long-awaited reckoning a victory by the ones oppressed over their former oppressors. I think we can all identify somewhat with this joy of getting justice on our enemies. But before the victory is won and before justice is reached, how can the powerless cry out to God? And what if our sins had somewhat led to the sufferings? What can we say to God when we are being punished for our sins? Psalm 79 shows us how God's people at the time of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem must have felt 
It was a communal lament or a prayer song of Israel to God, expressing the distress of God's suffering saints and the desire of these sorrowful sinners. But it closes with the future delight and praise of God's satisfied sheep. So first, verses 1 to 4 show us the distress of God's suffering saints. The psalmist laments in this way in verse 1, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Now, Hebrew poetry uses parallelism as a literary device. So here, God's inheritance or possession refers to the holy temple in Jerusalem, as well as the city of Jerusalem itself. The foreign invaders who who entered the city are the Babylonians. In 587 BC, these events described here, the desecration of the temple and the devastation of the city took place. And this tells us that Psalm 79 was probably written not too long afterward, likely within that generation. It's definitely before the Babylonians fell to the Persians in 539 BC, and certainly before the temple was rebuilt in 515 BC. So you can see that the wounds were still quite raw, and the hurt was still quite painful. After describing the fate of God's place, the psalmist then turns to recount in verses 2 to 3. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Your servants, your faithful, these are God's faithful people, his saints in the Old Testament. They had suffered and were killed by the invaders, and their bodies were left exposed to the elements and the birds and the beasts. Their blood was spilled on the streets like water all around Jerusalem. And this suggests that many Jews were massacred by the Babylonian invaders. It may be that their bodies were left exposed because, as the psalm says, there was no one to bury them, meaning there were more dead than living. There weren't enough people to bury their dead who outnumbered the living drastically. But aren't the invaders still obliged to do so? Well, the obligation to dispose of the dead respectfully, whether they are friendly or enemy, was only codified in the Geneva Conventions since 1929. And so Rule 115 reads, the dead must be disposed of in a respectful manner and their graves respected and properly maintained. But this has been a universally held duty and practice throughout history. Right? It's a great dishonour to the dead and deep humiliation to the living when the bodies of their beloved dead are left unburied. Such disregard for the dead may be a deliberate move by the invaders to further distress or bring, bring disgrace to their defeated foes or to show utter disdain for them. 
It draws comparison with terrible atrocities like the Nazi treatment of the Jewish people in the Holocaust, the Khmer Rouge genocide in Cambodia against the ethnic minorities, or more recently, the Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Now, these are all events that all humanity should be appalled by. We should be horrified by them. Since God is the Father of everyone as our Creator and Sustainer, God's people can rightly cry out to God and ask Him to look upon all suffering people. And since God is the intimate and loving Father of all who have faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, God's suffering saints can all the more and more certainly cry out to God for His intervention for those who are his servants and faithful ones. Moreover, the psalmist here is no distant bystander to all this. He includes himself in verse 4 by speaking in the first-person plural pronoun. He says, We have become a, a taunt to our neighbours, mocked and derided by those around us. He has himself suffered taunts, mockery and derision from the surrounding nations. And that is why he speaks with such passion. Like survivors of atrocities such as the Holocaust or the Cultural Revolution or the Japanese occupation, these wounds are very real and the hurt is deeply personal to him. And yet the psalmist tells God that it is his inheritance that has been invaded, his holy temple that has been defiled. His servants, whose body were given to birds for food, and his faithful, whose flesh was given to wild beasts. And he beseeches God to look on his own place and his own people and to act for his own namesake. The psalmist isn't consumed by his personal rage or vindictiveness, but he calls upon God to direct his wrath upon these enemies and to vindicate his people. And I think that's a great model for us to follow when we encounter injustices ourselves or in the lives of others. We can certainly borrow the words of the psalmist. The psalmist models to us how we may express the distress of God's suffering saints. And then in verses 5 to 12, the psalmist goes on to raise up the desire of sorrowful sinners. See, the psalmist here has one singular desire, and that is for God to do different things toward two different groups of people. He desires God to forgive and to rescue his people in verses 5, 8, 9, and 11. But he also desires God to judge and punish his enemies in verses 6, 7, 10, and 12. Now, you and I may have experienced times when we were in such great emotional conflicts and mental turmoil that we find ourselves lost for words. Norwegian painter Ed Edvard Munch painted his best-known work, The Scream, after he had gone for a walk in the fjord in, at sunset, and in his own words, he sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. Now, some art scholars think that this painting reflected Munch's 
psychological reaction at that time. His sister was going through mental illness and was institutionalized. And his, there was also his personal childhood trauma. I think Psalm 79 also helps us to discern the psalmist's emotional and mental state as he lays down his earnest desires before God. Perhaps that's why he intersperses his pleas for God's mercy on his people with his cries for God's justice against his enemies. So we're going to take a look at both uh, in turn. We're going to focus first on his pleas for God's people and then his cries against God's enemies. First, in verse 5, the psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? See, the psalmist acknowledges that God's saints are also sinners who deserve God's wrath. And that is why he doesn't ask God, Why are you angry? But rather, How long will you be angry? Is this going to last forever? In fact, the word jealousy itself hints at the reason for God's anger. God had warned his people in Exodus 34 verse 14, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is rightly jealous for the exclusive faithfulness of his people just as you and I rightly expect absolute fidelity from our spouses. God redeemed Israel to belong to himself, but she has committed adultery against God by worshipping foreign gods. And so God's jealousy burns righteously like fire because of his love for her. It's only when love has grown cold that we grow indifferent to infidelity. The psalmist prays in this way in verses 8 to 9. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. He intermingles once again the pleas for God's forgiveness of their sins and for his deliverance from the hand of sinners. Now, these sins here are their former iniquities, or as some translations rightly translate, the sins of past generations. And yet they confess as well in verse 9 that these are also our sins. The Babylonian invasion is God's judgment, for the cumulative sins of God's people. And the people recognize and accept their own guilt. They have broken God's covenant by practicing idolatry and perverting justice. And consequently, God, God's covenant blessings have been withdrawn from them. And that's why the land is taken away and God's people are decimated. And so the psalmist pleads for God to no longer remember the sins of his people anymore, to meet them with his compassion, to help them and deliver them, and to atone for their sins. Now, for God to remember no more but atone for their sins, sacrifices would have to be made. But remember from verse 1 that God's holy temple has been defiled and God's holy city has been levered. 
How then can God atone for the sins of his people? I believe this adds to their anguish. And the basis for their plea, they tell God, is for the glory of your name, for your name's sake. It is for the sake of God's honour among the nations that do not know him nor call upon his name. Also, God's people have been brought very low in their humiliation by this nations, the invaders. God's holy name is at stake in the plight of his people. And so he prays this in verse 11. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. The psalmist pleads for God to heed the painful groans of his oppressed people and to rescue them from certain destruction. He again invokes God's compassion for his people. Now we'll turn to the psalmist's cries for God to judge or to curse his enemies. And this, this cries, what are called imprecatory prayers, they are found in many of the psalms as well as the prophetic books and even in the New Testament. Here are some instances from Psalm 79 itself, verses 6 to 7. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. The psalmist calls upon God to pour out his anger on the, his enemies who do not acknowledge or worship him, who have killed God's people, and have devastated God's place. Now, to call upon God to pour out His anger here is to invoke righteous judgments on God's people. I'm sorry, God's enemies. It is divine justice, for these enemies have poured out God's people's blood like water. And it's for God's avenging of the outpoured blood of God's servants. Of the 12 times that this word, Pour out appears in the Psalms, in 150 Psalms. Three out of these 12 are found in Psalm 79. The psalmist uses this same verb here repeatedly to justify his plea that it is righteous. In verse 12, the psalmist also asks God to return sevenfold into the lap of our, our neighbours the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Again, this is a call for God to execute perfect justice, hence sevenfold, on those who in verse 4 has caused God's people to become a taunt to their neighbours, mocked and derided by those around them. God is to take this to heart, to take it personally because of His covenant with His people. The taunts against God's people are taken as direct taunts against God Himself. Now, to pray imprecatory prayers on God's enemies or to invoke God's curses and judgment on our foes may seem spiteful, even sinful, to sensitive folks like us in the 21st century. Didn't the Lord Jesus and his apostles teach us rather to love our enemies and to pray for those who hate us? Yes, they did. And yet our protests and aversion to this may betray an underestimation of God's holiness and our human sinfulness, an underappreciation for God's justice and compassion. 
we are undervaluing the sufferings of the innocent and showing an under-awareness of their desire for vindication. Until today, many comfort women, women who were forced into sexual slavery by the Imperial Japanese Army during the Second World War, they are still seeking justice, but their voices have been lost, increasingly so as they grew old and died. In September, local Christian website Sought and Light featured Sylvia Yu, a Korean-American who gave voice to comfort women in Asia by her book, A Long Road to Justice. And it is right, for if we forget these sufferings and injustices, we are silencing the voices of the sufferers. Our corporate laments, like Psalm 79, is how their voices are still heard today. In the opening passage, Revelation 6, we also read of how John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This echoes the cries of the psalmist here in Psalm 79. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Now today we are using the LCD projector to flesh out our song lyrics or in our DGs we may Google the song title and then paste it and send it by WhatsApp to everyone, right? But if you were in my generation and earlier, there were song books that we used to, to use, right? We used to photocopy them and then ring bind them and pass them around. Our lyrics were written on transparencies and I used to operate the OHP, you know, those who are old enough, OH, overhead projector, I used to operate that in my church. Uh, before that, and in more traditional churches today, there were hymnals and songbooks in the pews. Right? The, the book of Psalms is often called the songbook of Israel. And Jewish children would have sung and memorized these psalms from young. Perhaps that is why in the New Testament, the Lord himself, as well as his apostles, often quoted from or alluded to the Psalms, including many of these imprecatory prayers found within, as you can see here. So there is a place for imprecatory prayers and Psalms like this, when we see or when we hear of atrocities and injustices, whether in the world generally or against God's people specifically. But like the Psalmist, our prayers should be for God to execute judgment according to his perfect justice, commensurate to the sin. We do not ask God to do so out of our own vindictiveness. We pray this also for the glory of God's name among those who don't know him. And this means that God may choose to, in his sovereign will, to cause some of these foes to repent and to be saved, rather than to destroy them. And if that should happen, we shouldn't be like Jonah, blaming God for saving his enemies. We have other examples of 
uh, such prayers as well. For example, the Lord's woes, pronouncement of woes on the religious hypocrites in Matthew 23, or Paul's curse on the false teachers in Galatians 1, as well as Revelation 6, what we just read, the saints cry for justice over their foes. So then what is lost if we do not utter such laments or we do not pray such imprecatory prayers to God? Please indulge me to read a bit from this book, uh, the introduction from my Bible College lecturer, Jeff Harper and Keith Barker's introduction right, to this book called Finding Lost Words. They say, When was the last time we, re we recounted a story of failure to our brothers and sisters? Or when we stood to sing together a song that expressed the doubts and fears we harbour? Not so, it would seem, for followers of Jesus. And so what we sing is songs like, Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng, blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. But what happens when reality fails to match the rhetoric? The diagnosis comes back. It is cancer after all. Instead of happy retirement, early onset dementia steals the final years of a spouse's life. A mother stands at the grave of her child. Sexual preference means that fidelity to God will entail a celibate life and years of loneliness. What then? Our churches are full of examples of what then? Silence, retreat, maintaining a facade, seeds of disconnect that blossom into cynicism and a one-way exit out of the church back door. Faced with the reality of living in a broken world, what options do God's people have? What response should the righteous demonstrate as they inhabit the night time of weeping? The answer is perhaps closer than we realize. And they will go on to suggest that the answer uh, is the psalms of lament and imprecation in the Bible. And one of their convictions which drew this project of theirs is this, I quote, that the church needs to rediscover lament. There is a slow erosion of this expression of faith among God's people. The evidence of that loss is demonstrated by the popularly held view that to express lament is necessarily to take up a stance of doubt and unbelief, that verbalizing words of grief to God represents a lack of spiritual maturity rather than being an acceptable, even mandated response to life in a broken world. The net result is that the church has deprived itself of a means to righteously express anguish at both individual and corporate levels. Is it any wonder then that we witness so many ungodly, unrighteous responses to sadness and suffering? So this is just from the introduction. If you're interested, you can pick up a copy of this book. Uh, it's on, available on Kindle, so you can get it immediately after the service. Just a plug, shameless plug for my lecturers. But ultimately, even God's judgment is for his name's sake. Right? It's so that God's avenging of the outpoured blood of his servants may be known to the nations before his people's eyes. And in that way, 
even the nations that do not know him, nor do they call upon God, may come to know him. The forgiveness of our sins and the judgment of our enemies, that is the desire of sorrowful sinners. And finally, we read in verse 13 of the delight of satisfied sheep. This is how the psalm ends in verse 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Now, this is the English Standard Version translation, which seems to imply that although the situation hasn't improved, although God's people remains disenfranchised, although God's place remains devastated, and God's enemies reign undisturbed, yet God's people will still give thanks and praise God forever. Now, this may sound a bit over-idealistic, right? It doesn't seem to fit in with the, the rest of the psalm's tone of lament. After all, the psalmist's prayer isn't yet answered. The Hebrew connecting word here is simply end, right? So it's the literary context that really determines how this word is to be translated. But the New, Testament, the New International Version's translation is this, Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. Now, this could be also misunderstood as a transaction taking place between God and his people. God, if you would do this, then we will praise you. There's a condition. But rightly understood, I think the psalmist here is making a passionate plea. He's asking for the desired outcome, that God's people would have one more reason to praise him forever and to recount his praise from generation to generation. So it's really forming parts of the psalmist's lament. How long, O Lord? But whatever the meaning may be, the outcome is the same, that every faithful servant of God, what we delight in is that God's justice be done and God be glorified. In the words of the Lord Jesus in his model prayer for us, his disciples, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the delight of every saint. God will care for us as his people, the sheep of his pasture, and we shall be his satisfied sheep, delighting in his love. We will give thanks to him forever and recount his praise. We will pass on the gospel of his salvation from generation to generation. God's saints cry in our sufferings, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God gives his response to this lament in the next verse in Revelation 6, 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God's justice is only a matter of time, and his delay is only his gracious provision for our repentance and inclusion into his people. And now God has provided in Christ 
this atoning sacrifice for us, that he may be the God of our salvation, to deliver us and atone for our sins for his name's sake. So will we come to him and plead, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. For in the end, God will act. He will act to judge and avenge the blood of, his, of the saints on those who dwell on the earth. And then his faithful servants will join with the great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So for the rich and powerful like Elon Musk, justice can come swiftly by their own hand. But it is a cheap and coarse justice. Well, although it costs 44, million, uh, 44 billion, it is still a cheap justice that's vindictive and hurtful to others. But for the poor and powerless, like India, which suffered under the British Empire, justice may come as a long-awaited reckoning by the will of God who lifts up and cuts off horns. But for God's people, justice has come. Justice has come from the hand of a compassionate and just God. He has accomplished it by the death of his son on the cross, which is the only place where his justice and mercy meet perfectly. And so we, his people, the sheep of his pasture, can lament and tell him the distress of us, his suffering saints. We can bring to him the desire of us, his sorrowful sinners, for forgiveness and vindication. And finally, we can also declare the delight of us, his satisfied sheep. We will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Let's go to God together in prayer. O oh God, we thank you for giving us these words of lament in the Psalms so that we might bring our sorrows and griefs to you and that we might ask you for the forgiveness of our transgressions and for your deliverance from our troubles. O God of our salvation, we thank you and praise you that your compassion has come to meet us in Christ. You have helped us and delivered us. You have atoned for our sins through the blood of your Son, which is poured out for us outside Jerusalem. So now we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, can give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise through Christ our Lord. Amen.